loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Lila Glasso Francesi. Lila was born in Minneapolis in the 1970s, and she's a graduate of Breck School and attended SMU's Meadows School of the Arts in Dallas, earning her Bachelor of Fine Arts degree in 1994. She then relocated to L.A. and began writing, sold a screenplay, provided character voices for animated television shows, the most notable Family Guy, renovated real estate, and ran the personal lives of producers, studio heads, and CEOs. Lila's the recipient of a McKnight Fellowship and the Wellesley Book Award. She appeared professionally in regional theater in both Minneapolis and Los Angeles, Lila began a design house called Ojai Home in 2006, which she continues to run alongside her husband. Her interiors have been published in Architectural Digest South America, LA Yoga Magazine, and Ventana Magazine, among others. In 2016, Lila helped found the Carolyn Glasso Bailey Foundation. The nonprofit Art Charity funds artists and provides art education programs in schools through the foundation's initiative, the Ojai Institute. Lila currently lives with her family in Ojai, California. Her first book, The Situation, A Radical Journey Through Sisterhood, was just published this year, 2020. Welcome, Lila. Well, thank you. It's so great to be here. It's great to have you. Thank you for your book. Um, I, I've, I've had a couple of guests to talk about losing a sibling, uh, mm. and there is not that much out there. I had someone immediately when I sent out the promotion for this say, oh, my God, my best friend just lost her brother, and she hasn't been able to find anything, you know. Um, so yeah. I really appreciate being able to talk about this today. Oh, thank you so much. I, I think that's true. I also think... Um, how I lost my sister, which was glioblastoma brain cancer, has very little written about it as well. And that, that both of those reasons were reasons that I wrote the book. And that is very particular. I, I interviewed Dan Diaz, who was married to Brittany Maynard, mm-hmm. uh, the woman who um, left to go to Oregon to um, end her life. Yes. Um, and I believe she had glioblastoma and the, the kind of the thing she talked about in so many interviews was kind of what she was looking forward to as the end time of that illness. It's, it's remarkably and particularly brutal, I think. Yes. And you know, what's, uh, what's ironic about you mentioning that is that that article came out um, in people magazine about her right when my sister was diagnosed. Oh, wow. And so it really brought to the foreground the the whole subject matter of glioblastoma brain cancer. But before my sister was diagnosed, I had no idea there was a kind of terminal, uncurable, you know, so far, um, brain cancer. I thought all cancers, you could try to get cured. 
Yes. Well, and of course, that's not the only one. There's uh, pancreatic, which my mother died of, you know, yes. very hard to treat. Um, several others. But it's interesting because uh, when when I was younger, uh, cancer was you heard cancer and you assumed it was untreatable. Ah. And it has moved some over time. Uh, and that's that's pointed out by what you're saying, that you kind of assumed there would be ways to deal with it. I really did. And I thought, um, I thought, well, it's got to be early enough to deal with it. I mean, of course, at first we thought it was just brain cancer. You actually have to have the tumor taken out to know it's glioblastoma. Um, but we even until I heard the word glioblastoma, I had huge amounts of hope and and after hearing that word, I had many months of denial um, reading the definition of what that actually meant. So you were reading, you were Googling, you were doing all that. And the, um, the information out there on glioblastoma is pretty clear, right? Right. So how did denial work? Was it just that you thought your sister would be an exception or, uh, you know, I'm really interested in denial because yeah. we need it, right? Right. <laughs> but how we actually pull it off when we do, right? Uh, you know, I, I sort of in the course of 10 years of my wife's first wife's illness, I kind of, um, my denial um, pathways have been completely shot. I have mm -hmm. very, very little ability in that area any longer. But how did you manage that? You know, I'm going to say I agree with you that I'm where you are now after going through that experience. But back then, I think, you know, my sister was such a groundbreaking woman in terms of she was an art dealer um, in the 80s and 90s when that was a primarily male dominated field. She was always the first to do things. So in your head, then you apply that expectation to the illness. And I just thought, well, someone's got to be the first person to recover from glioblastoma. If it's going to be anyone, it's going to be her because she's been so groundbreaking in other areas of her life. That, that brought up a very uh, uh, poignant memory for me, which is that when, uh, and, and this happened all the time, that people would come up to my wife and say, you'll be okay. You're so strong. Right. And, uh, she... <laughs> She was good at uh, in, uh, coming up with comebacks mm. for things that she heard over and out, over and over. Uh, she came up with this one pretty pretty fast. I know a whole lot of strong dead people. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. <laughs> um, because that's what we're talking about, as if somehow you can be a certain kind of person and that's going to determine how things go. I think right. that's just a yeah. common fantasy, isn't it? it? It really is. I mean, I have to say one of the other lessons that I learned throughout my journey with uh, terminal illness with my sister was what not to say to people, right? And what, sure. not, to, <laughs> and what not to send people. And I really, it really changed um, how I related to, to friends being ill or shocking things happening to friends or what's so prevalent right now in our country of, you know, racial unrest. And I think um, like anything, most often the thing that just is always okay to say is I'm so sorry, or gosh, we love you. So sorry you're going through this, you know? Yeah, the, uh, 
I can't think of a situation in this in which you shouldn't say that. But I also think, uh, and this is coming up in terms of of um, you know implicit bias, anti racism, all of those areas, that we have to be willing to say the wrong thing. Sure, because that's because otherwise we we're silenced. <laughs> you yes. know, we we don't say anything about this, that, or the other thing. Um, yes, and and that's. That's, of course, one of the most painful things when you're going through something like you and your sister were going through, just people who drop off. Yeah. Well, and I think also the other thing that's really tough is not only do you hear people saying, well, this will be fine. You've got this. You're tough. You also have everyone believing that they have the solution that's going to cure your sister or your spouse or your, you know, your family or your friend. And oh my gosh, the, the amount of, of belief in just different things were so, you know, up and down the map (laughs) that um, you kind of just wanted someone to come over and, and not offer how they thought she should be treated, you know? Um, And in your case with your sister, maybe bring a bottle of wine. Yeah. Or I remember, (laughs) I remember her favorite card was one time in the mail, a friend of her mother-in-law's who was an older lady, um, just sent her a bottle of gin and all the cards said on it is sometimes all you need is a bottle of gin. (laughs) (laughs) So that kind of connects with something that just repeatedly gets said on this show. Uh, Pick something to do that is within your wheelhouse that isn't more than you actually have to give and just go ahead and do it. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so, so that's what she did. She just, what can I do? I can send a bottle of gin. <laughs> yeah. I, I remember another great gift was uh, an artist that worked with Carolyn in New York. His uh, wife sent Carolyn a book that was just how to swear in every country in the world. <laughs> <laughs> And she got it, you know, anything during these situations that adds humor and relief makes you feel as that sick person and as the caregivers of that sick person human again, because so much of it makes us feel like, you know, we forget that, that part of ourselves that laughed a little bit more that, you know, had compassion that could laugh with one another because everything's so serious we're going through. So anything that helped with adding humor to our life, we, we embraced widely. And if you're someone like me who didn't have a sense of humor before that 10-year period and found it during that time, Mm -hmm. it's particularly, uh, I really learned how to laugh and joke and gallows humor, my favorite during that that period, Uh, including, you know, things like these quips that my wife would come up with, like the strong person one. Uh, there, There was a whole list of them and they were so enjoyable. Yes. They caught people up short but they deserved it a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know what, there's a little, there's a little bit of satisfaction in there that I think is okay that people understand, you know, the other way that I read that is if she did that kind of response, and I don't know if this is true of you and and Carolyn or not, but if she made that kind of response, she didn't end up swallowing it. She didn't end up kind of, feeling the pressure of that inside herself. She had given it back. You're Uh, totally right. You're totally right. I think she, Carolyn did not like being the victim and she didn't like the, I think I mentioned it in the book, the, um, the, oh, pitying you faces uh, 
she that that drove her crazy. She just she just didn't want that. It wasn't the focus that she wanted. So yeah, if there was something that took away that focus, that was always a relief. The next thing I'd really like to talk about is you and she as a relationship, because I'm an older sister. I have one brother, but I'm the oldest. And um, I was thinking very frequently while I was reading your book, here you were, the younger sister, and a lot of the memories that you talk about in the book are about her, you looking up to her, her guiding you, you know, on purpose or not. Mm -hmm. um, taking you along, you know, and having that be the thrill. And so one thing I was really aware of that would happen in your circumstance with her is that those roles just changed in very remarkable ways. And I, and I wondered how that was for the, the two of you. Yeah, they, they really did. Um, I was the younger sister who followed along and learned from her. And I did end up being sort of the um, caretaker and the ever knowing sister who helped her with everything at the end and, and choices. And um, I have to say that uh, grief specifically, uh, the grief of her illness and the grief of her death made me into a way stronger, much more dynamic person. Mm -hmm. and, and that is the positive thing that I take from it. You know, I never would have been someone that started an art foundation, which you were reading about in my bio. I would have never been someone that wrote a book, honestly. Um, so it inspired me to a whole new level of living. And I believe a level that Carolyn was able to live at for the 44 years she lived her life. That's interesting because there's the one part of it that, that is about um, elastic resilience, not that, you know, a firm, non-moving resilience, but the kind where you bend and you learn to adapt and, you, you know, um, that that is favored by going through challenges and facing them and, you know, making something out of them. Um, but also it sounds as if you're saying a little bit that you kind of absorbed some of her qualities I think so, because I think it was the first time I had ever really journeyed into myself. And, um, you know, there was just a, a, a whole new level of complexity and deepness and feelings that I had never, um, never experienced. I mean, I've, I, I've talked about this to friends after the fact that I had never been somebody who would lose weight when I was upset. I always ate, you know, candy and tons of carbs and all of that when I was upset to make myself feel better. But it was the actually the first time in my life that I was so upset I physically could not eat. Mm. And I got really, really thin. And I think that sort of showed me, hey, I'm a tough, I'm a tough broad, but uh, this, it took something of this caliber to really break me and shake me and, um, and also to facilitate change in my person. And part of that reflects, from my view, the relationship you had with Carolyn. Not all siblings are so interwoven as you were, and still are, I'm sure. Right. Um, well, yeah. You know, <laughs> uh, just because in your book, of course, you talk about your experiences, sisters, 
not just in cancer, but the whole the whole life <laughs> that you had together. And it just seemed remarkable to me how it, how much connection was expressed in your lives. Yeah, um, you know, we Carolyn and I, uh, we, you know, we had our moments as teenagers, but we were very, very close in age and we had a much older father and my mom worked the whole time and she and I really became close because of that dynamic and um, actually grew up as adults who, you know, plain and simple, just enjoyed one another. And things like, uh, and, and we'll talk about this more after our break, which is coming up in a few seconds, uh, things like her introducing you to your husband and, uh, yep. you know, just <laughs> um, trying to have kids. You didn't end up quite having kids at the same time, but you tried, right? Yeah, and they're <laughs> so only just, two years apart. <laughs> it, it reminds me of my of my wife's family. She's she's oldest of eight, and there's all all kinds of relationships like that. People who live a mile apart, and you know, um, so it it resonated with me that way. And I, I'd like to talk, leave more space for that after the break, just how the type of relationship you had with her then affected how the two of you navigated cancer together. Okay. Listeners, you'll find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. And uh, to find Lila, I think the best place might be the Carolyn Glasso Bailey Foundation. Um, but her book is also available at where fine books are sold. Be back soon. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. What sets apart VoiceAmerica.tv from the other video content providers on the internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main VoiceAmerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Be sure to like the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel on Facebook. You'll find great health tips from the experts. Find out more about your favorite shows and talk back to our team. Search Voice America Health or click the like button under the player today. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. 
Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Lila Glasso Francesi about her sister's illness and death and the book she wrote about it, The Situation. And um, I really want to launch a bit into how you believe the nature of your, you know, because I think grief is affected by the the type of relationship, the particular connect, you know, it's very unique and particular. How do you think that experience was affected by the type of relationship you had with Carolyn? Well, what's really interesting is, you know, and actually after her death and after people have read the book, friends of ours, they always say, um, I didn't realize that you guys were so close. And I guess that's because um, with Carolyn's job and, um, also just both of our volunteer work where we both have sat on multiple boards and things like that. Our relationship was really personal and really, I want to say intimate for a sibling relationship. Um, the, the, the reason when I look back that I think it worked is Carolyn was very, very good at things that I was not. And there were things that I was very good at that she was not. So really the major thing that changed our life was becoming mothers and realizing there's things that she could help me with and I could help her with. And that was the best thing to have happen for seven years that we enjoyed together to sort of prepare us for um, then caring for one another. I was also the only person that could be tough with Carolyn. Her husband did not, does not like confrontation. And I, you know, so I also became the bad cop in a way, like, no, you're taking your pills, sorry. <laughs> So there's a way, that must have been quite a quite an interesting experience for her because uh, you give the impression of her as someone with quite a commanding presence, someone you wouldn't necessarily want to go up against. That is that is completely true. I mean, we everyone always called her uh, and we called her Memorial Art Show fierce generosity because she was fierce, but she was also amazingly generous. Although I will tell you that I never lost an argument with Carolyn. I was the, and and people would be shocked to think that, but I was the only one that could win an argument with her. Because <laughs> we, you know, sisters know each other. We know how to get to each other. I mean, really, that's the thing with siblings. We're the longest relationship of our lives. Um, you know, you have your children later in life. You meet your spouse later in life. You lose your parents partway through your life. But if you're lucky, you have a sibling through it all. And um, obviously her life was cut short, but I think just even knowing that that's gonna be the person that will be around for your whole life gives you a little power of freedom in speaking and, and acting with them. <laughs> it's pretty hard to get rid of a sibling. Yeah. People pull <laughs> it off now and then, but <laughs> the, the, the connection remains in some manner, right? Right. And we're, you know, Carolyn and I come from a Scandinavian background and there's something called Sisu about Finnish women. And my mother is Finnish and it it's, means fierce determination. And we both had that. So we were fiercely determined that the other one should know how the other one felt. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing though, that, well, you know, this may be an overgeneralization, but I have a pretty close friend who grew up in a Finnish community in Minnesota and the thing he talks about a lot is a very um, collective consciousness uh, where you're kind of all in it together. And uh, so the fierceness and the sense of community that's different from, I grew up not near any community. Um, mm -hmm. 
and I don't know if that is true of your family or not, but I did kind of think of him while I was reading just because it felt so um, uh, all for one, one for all. I don't know how else to yeah. put well, I think that's also a true, I mean, Minnesota, where, where we hail from, even though I live in California now, um, Minnesotans are like that. And I don't know, maybe that is, that does have something to do with the Scandinavian heritage. Um, but I also just think it's a Midwestern thing too. And, you know, it's, we're with our families inside in climates like that. For, <laughs> you better get along. <laughs> yeah, for every, there's maybe 59 days of summer. So, um, you're in, you know, you really learn how to navigate as a, as a family unit for sure. So uh, another thing that touched me a lot was, you know, you, you already described that you uh, kind of, when you had kids, you kind of um, had different things to bring to supporting each other and that, and that created a situation in which I would say you were um, especially close with her son, which must have been both difficult or um uh, painful to watch him have to navigate his mom's death, but also helpful because he was used to you kind of showing up for him. Yeah. I mean, um, Matson used to call, that's her son's name, my walking closet, his bedroom when he was, was little because <laughs> she had to travel so much with her art career. Um, you know, she had collectors that, that she worked with all over the world and when he was little, she would leave him with me. Um, well, I guess his whole life. And and actually Matson does live with me now. And so he is still part, he is, he is, I call him my bonus son. Uh-huh. So yeah, but that, I mean, that's the, the most difficult part of the entire journey was she would repeatedly say, I didn't want this for Matson. And for me, uh, that difficult part continues that every event he has in his life. Um, you know, there, there are many tears shed at graduations or um, at any of the accolades, you know, that come up that she's not there for. You know, I appreciate though the subtext there because I, I have a lot of clients that come to me that aren't allowed those tears. Um, they, sure. aren't in an, they aren't in an environment, mostly adults who weren't allowed those tears, uh, you know, who had to, power on and are left with uh, bigger leftovers than just having the feelings. Well, that's Um, been the the power of the book. I had one lady um, write me an email after she read it and she said, um, I lost my mother. She died next to me when I was eight years old. And in the morning she was taken away and it was never spoken of again. And this is like a 60 year old woman now. And she just said, Thank you for um, writing your book because it allowed me to sort of, you know, let those feelings that weren't spoken of in my early life, it allowed me to move through them with you. And that was, that was one of the most rewarding things that's happened from, from the publishing aspect of the book. Absolutely. And, and I, I feel that's changed a bunch. I'm older than you. I'm in my mid sixties. Uh, there is a shift happening in how acceptable it is to grieve yeah, uh, or show grief. It's not that people haven't grieved all along, but to, to publicly show grief, to, to share that it hurts or, you know, just to have, have ways to mourn. 
Uh, I feel there's been a bit of a shift happening. I think too, Cheryl, I actually, you just made me realize something I've never realized before, which is I, one of the most proud moments I had of how I dealt with the situation, um, which is so funny because the book's called The Situation, um, Mm -hmm. but um, was actually after Carolyn died and um, her husband and her son were building a house across the street from us. And, um, but the night she died, everyone slept at my house. And that continued for about a week. And I thought, isn't this terrific? Because we were tight enough as a family unit. We actually call ourselves the, the uh, Francis Bailey tribe. Um, that we were tight enough as a family unit where no one really talked. I mean, we talked about her and we cried and everything. But we just, there was an unspoken acceptance of we just needed to all be together. I was thinking, you know, obviously going through uh, the loss of her and and what that illness does to to people, which I want to talk about in a couple of minutes. Uh, I was curiously aware of some advantages you you had. I'm aware of that in my own circumstance too, mm. with with my life. Uh, very supportive community. Um, I didn't have adequate money, but we, we got by, you know, it was enough. Yeah. (laughs) We had a place to live. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, I had a flexible, uh, job, uh, cause I became a therapist while she was ill. So, Mm -hmm. you know, that's, you're kind of more in control of your timing, all these things that gave me some sense of having space for the experience. And of course, you're, you were also self-employed, but possibly less flexibly. Uh, I recall a couple of times in the book where, you know, push came to shove about having to show up for work when you, when she wanted you to be with her and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But do you think those things affected your experience, kind of um, the economics of it and the supports uh, that you gave each other and that were around you? Well, you know, one of the really wonderful things that came out of it is I didn't really know my brother-in-law's mother. Uh, I mean, I did. I would go spend Thanksgiving, but um, they really stepped forward and helped out uh, like they could. And um, like I call Matson a, a bonus son, I call her a bonus mother-in-law. Mm. <laughs> um, because they were- Have as many as you can get, right? No, I'm just, I'm just adding them daily. Yeah. But, um, you know, there was- we're, we're lucky we live in a little town. She doesn't live here, but she would come out and she would also offer like, you know, she bought Carolyn her wig when Carolyn, when that would make Carolyn feel more comfortable out in public. Um, so there was a lot of support with that um, financially from, you know, family. And um, luckily Carolyn had been successful and she actually was a whiz at the stock market. Um, other people used to listen to music on the treadmill and she used to watch Mad Money. So... <laughs> Uh, you know, a lot of that got drained. She, I mean, that, she was very driven, wasn't she? She was very, very driven. It, <laughs> you know, people say she packed in her, uh, well, it was 44 years till she got ill and then she died at 46, but she packed into those years more than most people do in a lifetime. And um, and because of that, she was also able to take care of herself, you know, when she got sick. Although I, it, 
it's a fortune to be ill in this country. Oh my and, God. No, and no. it is just devastating. We would actually sit with, you know, she made hospital friends as she called them. And we had this really wonderful couple um, that we, I think we went to Palm Springs with them or had them to lunch with us in Palm Springs. And, um, and David, who I'm still friends with, had lost his husband, but during the, this lunch, they, they were still alive and very good friends with um, Chris and Carolyn. And they just talked about, oh my gosh, the millions of dollars they had gone through, the real estate they had to sell, the, you know, the debt that they, you know, just acquired from from illness. And that's the really sad thing. And I, you know, I I I do feel like that's something that we never took for granted because we always understood gosh, when she was doing some of these medical trials and taking pills that we, she had to pay for, there's so much, so many ill people in this country who don't have that who don't have, Yes, that's yeah. so true. Uh, I was talking to a friend of my daughter's who's a young gay man, and he happens to be on a health plan that, that gives him PrEP, which prevents HIV infection mm-hmm. uh, for $5 a month. But his friends can't get it because it's too expensive. Yeah. And that's a life and death uh, situation, really. Yeah. For those young men. Yes. Uh, so that's another example, you know, of uh, of this, the kind of thing you're talking about. People are ruined by illness. And then not to mention a lot of people have to, um, you know, quit work to take care of their ill person because they can't afford um, home help or, you know, any, any resources in that way. And that's a big economic hit too. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So here's, here's the other thing that uh, we're, we're only just going to barely get started with this and then we will come back to it after the break. But uh, I was comparing so i had these 10 years with my loved one Mm -hmm. and until the last few months of that time her her mind was completely unaffected um which meant that we could have uh the kinds of conversations that were so valuable to me uh we got so much closer you know, uh, through sharing often, and also just through going through it together, of course. Um, mm-hmm. But I, while I was reading your book, I was thinking about the impact of her being, um, you know, almost becoming not the person that you had had in your life the whole time, because that particular illness affects the brain so much. Yeah. And I wonder how that how that was, you know, there were there were these uh, moments where I felt like that experience peaked through the book, just the radical changes in her and trying to relate to that um, because it was so unlike her before that. Can you speak to that some? Sure. I mean, I think that's the cruelness of brain cancer. You know, if you get breast cancer, you can remove a breast. Um, you can't remove your, your head and your brain. And I, I, I think I do touch on it in the book where um, I, we used to think this is not her in front of me. And if she's not here, where is she? Mm-hmm. Um, 
but you know the memory of her the love of her uh the life that she brought to the world with me seeing Matson every day is really where i drew my energy to um continue to remember the person she was that then i was lovingly care caring for um you know, there were tough moments, steroids, when you have tumors and they put you on steroids to try to reduce tumor size, it makes you extremely crabby and even temperamental and irrational. And there were some very, very tough moments um, like that. But you do, you are powered through by knowing that, um, I don't know, there was comfort in just having her there, you know, just having that physical body there and being able to sort of take a long time to, I don't want to say enjoy that loss, but um, really accept that loss by mm. having at least her physical body with me every day. Let's come back to that after the break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent. Inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Over 20 million people in America struggle with substance use. This impacts both the people who are using and loved ones who are trying to help. Still, there is hope. Tune in to the Beyond Addiction Show with host Josh King. You'll hear from experts and get the real information you need to understand and assist in change. Change can be hard. It doesn't have to be confusing. Tune in every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health and Wellness. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. I've been talking with Lila Glasso-Francesi about her book, The Situation, and we were talking before the, the break, Lila, about um, this kind of loss of her before you lost her body, you know, before she died. It, it um, reminded me of conversations I've had with people when someone they love has Alzheimer's, but that is a long, 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 long time usually. And this was actually pretty, pretty quick. Uh, in the scope of things. Um, but it also sounds as if there were moments for her of being lucid and there and able to communicate relate relatedly. Is that mm -hmm. true to say as well? 
Well, Carolyn had three surgeries and I think it wasn't till that last one that she, um, that her vocabulary became only about 60 words. Uh, that's what we were guessing. So we played a lot of charades. Uh -huh. uh, that was the hard part. I don't know if you've ever read the bell jar, but it kind of felt like, yes. um, you know, where that man communicates by his eyelids. Uh, it kind of felt like that because I could see that she knew what she wanted, but she couldn't articulate it because that message from going to her brain to her mouth wasn't working, um, which was interesting because she, so she would point or we, and we would try to figure things out, which actually, like we talked about before, often led to uh, hysterics. I'm actually amazing at charades now, but um, <laughs> <laughs> did you, did you find, I, I know I found with my wife who in the last four months, uh, what finally uh, killed her was, um, was, uh, bone degeneration in the bloodstream, mm -hmm. which, which also takes the brain, you know. Um, and I found I got quite good at, at guessing what she was saying. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how that works, but I got much better at it as time went on, kind of intuiting where, uh, what she was trying to get across. Did you experience that too? Uh, totally. I mean, and I think Carolyn and I were really lucky that we had that anyway with one another before she was diagnosed. Um, you know, I used to talk to her on the phone nine times a day. We had lunch or dinner together probably five times a week, uh, if, if sometimes every day, you know. Um, we were always in each other's lives that heavily where we, it's one of those people where like she'd call and I'd say I was just picking up the phone. So, yeah. you know, it was almost like this. I don't know. I, I, I often wonder, I mean, I've heard that twins have that, but I wonder too, if women have it more greatly because of female intuition, I don't know, but I um, think it's also particular to the, to a relationship though, because sure. I had that to a very high degree. Uh, I've had that with certain people and not with other people, whether right. they're women or not. So, yeah. yeah. So, so yeah. So we, um, I feel like I knew what she wanted even like in the times when, cause she couldn't decide what she wanted at a restaurant at the end or if we were ordering food and, but I knew, you know, what she liked to eat. And so I would order for her what she liked to eat, which was interesting cause I'm a vegetarian and Carolyn was a, a, a big meat eater. She <laughs> uh, so was suddenly, time. suddenly uh, ordering veal and, and I, you know, lamb chops. <laughs> I was, and I keep mostly of, you know, a vegetarian kitchen and I was cooking food, but her son really enjoyed meat. He loved pork. And, um, and, you know, when, you know, giving people food is one of the ways that we nurture them. So, you know, all the, all the rules changed with cooking and ordering. And, um, and I, I was of course fine with that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I just think that there, I feel, I, I always felt like she was a, appreciative. She would look to me to do things. We talk about um, with her husband, she at the end called him the other sister. And he would say to me, <laughs> why aren't I the other? Um, why aren't you the other husband? <laughs> and I, and I, I would say, well, you know, I've been here a little bit longer. But, um, you know, when something would come up that poor someone guy. Needed, I know, poor guy, Chris, bless his heart. He's the most patient, gentle guy. But he, um, you know, honestly, when people wanted something from her, or even when people were visiting at the end, I would be sure to be there so I could help interpret. And she would often just look at me like, I can't answer, you have to answer. And, um, and you know, that's, that's how we ebbed and flowed with one another. 
And then that brings us in a way to uh, two things. One is that I am, uh, <laughs> my end of life plan, which is not a plan, is to know when to call it quits. Mm -hmm. That's what I pray for. <laughs> yeah. You know, and in a way, you got that before she did. That's how it seemed in the book that you got that it was time to quit doing all the stuff, right? Or time mm -hmm. to have the visitors not be there. That's a lot to carry for someone. Oh, gosh. Yeah, uh, I, yeah there, and, and, you know, I did force her to see uh, two people at the end of her life when she didn't want to. And one was a very dear friend that I knew had she been in her right mind um, that she would want to see. And I felt it was, uh, it was an artist who she was really, really close to and, and he had flown out from New York and she wasn't seeing anyone. And I said, you are, honey, you are going to see him because he needs that closure and you don't understand that right now. And so I'm going to make it brief, but you're going to see him. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, that's a lot of it too, is that not only are you for facilitating for this terminally ill person, but you also have, you know, people would say to me, oh gosh, Lila, that was so hard to see her. I mean, and then start crying. Um, you know, I became, as you said, I mean, maybe you did the wiser thing. You became the therapist while your, <laughs> while your wife was ill. Because well, I, felt, I was already on that road before right. she got ill. So. <laughs> but, but I was always a little bit surprised because people would just, you know, I'd walk them out to their car and they would just break down and have me hold them. And I would come in and say to my husband, it's just shocking to me that they don't consider that it's also really hard on me. You know why what I mean? Aren't, why aren't they inviting you to cry on their shoulder it was really unexpected and um you know and i, I want to say i'm not judging that at all because how first of all during times of grief is a time that none of us should be judged because it's just so highly it just elevated. Is what it is yeah but, but um but but i also did notice and i noticed this particularly with um there were a few people who had avoided coming over because they were kind of scared of her illness and it had and it had been a long time. They could have gotten over it in that time, but they hadn't. And then they wanted to come say goodbye. And she was in such bad shape, right? Mm -hmm. Well, that was not shocking for me. Yeah, I was living with it every minute of every day. Right. I wasn't crying all the time. Well, you can't. You can't. Uh, I mean, that's. I was busy. Yeah. You, well, <laughs> and you. You know, and you can't. If you were crying all the time, how would she get through the end of her life? So you. How How would I be available to right. know? You do, but the, you do have that. Right. But then the other person was overcome. Yeah. Because they were dropping right into the middle of the end. Well, and then the hard part of that for the caregiver is if there's people visiting then every day, it's half you're witnessing it and having to caretake for them to every day. So your level of expiration. <laughs> <laughs> and you so know, our, our advice is, if you're going to visit someone to say goodbye, have get someone your, pick your, you up at the yeah. end who's got some sense. Right, or get in, your, get in your car and go. You know, the the people dealing with that person have enough to deal with, you know. But I do think there were people that didn't visit her at all that I think it was just too hard from. I actually, one of her greatest girlfriends now um, in life, I, I don't talk to. I mean, I have talked to maybe twice, but she my voice sounds a lot like Carolyn's. 
And she said, I just can't, it, I'm sorry, I can't cry when I hear you on the phone. So we're just not there yet. And, and I knew, she, and that's because she deeply, deeply loved my sister. And I get that, but I, and I also look a lot like her and I would mm -hmm. walk into rooms in communities that she knew better than me. Like we had a memorial for her in New York at a gallery and people <laughs> would look at me, they still do and go, <gasps> or at an art fair. Cause it's like, wait, that looks like Carolyn, you know? And, but um, that to me is such a beautiful thing. And the last thing I just wanted to invite you to talk about a little bit is obviously to me anyway, you know, your book ended right when she died, but obviously you still have a very um, rich relationship with her. Mm -hmm. and, and when someone sees you and it reminds them of her and they, and they shut down somewhat, you know, or mm -hmm. pull away, that's sad to me because it means they're not um, saying yes to the relationship that they still have. No, yeah. they don't want to feel sad, so they they're going to miss all the rest of it. But but do you have that sense that you're still related to her? Oh my uh, gosh, yes. I mean, I'm I I talk to her out loud, and I feel like. I, I honestly will like put on an outfit and I hear her going, uh, no way. That is not good on you. Like, you know, um, what's in you get fashion advice. I'm I, so I do. I get fashion advice. I get mothering <laughs> advice. I I've often say to Matson, your mother would not be okay with this. You know, um, <laughs> it, that's you a know, big gun. That oh, is I, a big gun. I've said to her husband, Carolyn would not allow you to wear that outfit. What are you wearing? You know? <laughs> So yeah, I mean, definitely she's still really present in our lives. I mean, that's been the wonderful thing about the Carolyn Glasso Bailey Foundation, um, which if people want to look up at CGB Foundation is a little easier.org, her initials, but um, oh, great. she, um, that makes people still talk about her. Um, I can't tell you how many artists in residence or guest artists we have come talk and they tell me a wonderful story that I never knew about my sister. So I'm even still discovering things about her after she's gone and that really starting that foundation and now we're, you know, in a couple years into it, that's been, that's been just amazing in terms of keeping her spirit, her fierce generosity, um, connections, everything alive. Yeah. I also, uh, for myself anyway, you know, obviously this show is a, is a, a legacy in a sense. Mm -hmm. uh, comes directly out of that experience. And it feels so good to have something to do with the experiences that we had together to, yeah. to have, to have something I it's of use, you know, to do with everything we went through. And I could imagine that the same would be true for you. Yeah. And also that's, that's, that's what was great about writing that book. And um, my mom and I edited parts of it together. My mom's 80 years old and, um, we had some good cries together, but it was very cathartic, you know, the process of it. And um, I would, you know, I don't, a lot of people aren't writers, but um, if you feel like you can be a writer and you're dealing with grief, it really helps to get, just put down stories on the page, sad ones, funny ones. I mean, I think my book is as, it's not a, a necessarily a sad book. It's very funny in places, but just having all those memories in one spot was really, really rewarding. And I could imagine, uh, because the way, you're, I don't know if this was a mental decision or just the way it came out of you, 
but uh, the memories in it are so vivid um, of your life previously and in childhood. That's why there's funniness, right? A right. lot of the funniness has to do with just things you experience together. And I think that's a kind of reclamation of your relationship in its in its totality. I mean, you did this pretty, pretty fast. A lot of pe people take a while, you know, to <laughs> process before they write. I'm not an immediate writer myself. Yeah, I usually uh, have to wait a while to percolate. But um, you seem to have been able to access that pretty quickly. Well, you know, a lot of the flashbacks in the book to our childhood um, were stories that Carolyn told. Um, I, I, one in particular I'm thinking about is the one, The Bully, where I, she told that at my rehearsal dinner when I got married um, about how a, a little girl had been stealing all the all the quarters and giving me, no, she had given me the nickels and taken all the dimes saying, well, you get the bigger ones. But she was a, a little bit older of a girl and Carolyn had gone and gotten such bad behavior. Me. I know it was from our lemonade stand and Carolyn had gone and gotten them back for me. And, you know, she sort of gave my husband fair warning at the rehearsal dinner, you know, watch out. Cause I've, uh, you know, I've been watching out for her for a long time. <laughs> And I, and I feel like I, I want to say, because I know we're getting near the end, that she still does watch over all of us. And, um, you know, I don't see that even citing any sort of religious belief with that, other than going through um, life and the grief, the illness and the grief experience. The one thing I do know for sure is that when people die, they don't fully leave us. They are still around us. You still feel them. You, you know, yes. I dream about her. I hear her. I, I try to live my life how she would be proud of me. And the thing is, what I say often about that is I really don't care if there is some other dimension where the people I've lost currently exist. It doesn't matter to me because experientially they're, they're there. So whether that's knowing them so well inside that, that I can imagine that or whether they're really there it doesn't change my experience at all. Right. I mean, these are the big questions. About. Yeah, these are the yeah. big questions. And, and yeah, part of, I guess, maturity that you get from grief is also just admitting, I, I don't know. It brought up new things for me, but I don't know. Yeah, um, you, get wise, you get wiser, absolutely. not because of what you know, but because you're able to say, I, I don't know. <laughs> yep. I have some good guesses, but I don't know for sure. Thanks for being with me today. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. I have two, Cheryl. And you can go find the book and, and everything about Lila Glasso Francesi at thesituationbook.com. Next week, I'll have Tim Selig back on the show. He's the director of the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus, and he's written a new memoir, Tale of Two Tims, Big Old Baptist, Big Old Gay. That should be fun. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.